0: I remember when I moved to Silicon Valley, uh, there was a particular incident where my VP mentioned to me that her sister is not well and she wanted to go. And my VP is around 70 years old. And I thought, oh, she might go and visit her sister and ask her, when are you going to visit? And she's like, oh, I can't go. There's a product launch coming up. And then one week later, I remember we were all in a meeting. She got a phone call. She stepped out of the room. She And then she never came back. And then when I met her later in the day, she told me that her sister passed away. So... Uh, that Mm -hmm. actually struck me like a bolt of lightning. And then I realized that someone who's earning more than three times more than me is almost like a wage slave and still not able to spend time with their loved ones. So I think that's when I decided to pursue financial independence.
1: You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, And their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number one twenty four. Clark, how's it going, man? Good, good. How are you doing? Doing great. You know, it's been a crazy couple, I guess, week here, week and a half uh, with the markets. You know, with the coronavirus, the market taking a plunge, and then. You know, having a little rebound to start the week, it's kind of crazy, totally. you know, it's funny as we were as I was kind of going through and editing this last week's podcast we we edited that
2: after the first day that there was a three percent drop or three and a half percent drop, right, yeah, and then it was like five straight days or four straight days of that, whatever, and it went down eleven, twelve, thirteen percent, whatever it was, total. And now recording this, March 2nd, where it's just gone up about 4.7%. So okay, and it'll be fun exactly. with these millionaire interviews coming up. You know we can ask some of these millionaires what they're doing, what they're thinking about this, because that's kind of one thing we wanted to talk about here is what these millionaires do when there's a turn in the market like this, right? If they sell, if they hold, if they put more in, how aggressive they are with the cash on the sideline and, and those sorts of things. So it will be interesting in these upcoming interviews to ask the millionaires those type of
1: questions. Totally. You know, this this time, I don't know how, how you do things, but this time of year is kind of the year that I, I, I take a deep deep dive into everything, getting stuff ready for, you know, getting taxes and all sorts of junk. And one thing I, I always do is review all the beneficiaries and estate planning and wills and stuff that we've got. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about before the show, and I've had some conversations with, with some other friends and stuff. I don't know that, that maybe we bring this topic up enough, uh, one, with these millionaires and how they plan for estate planning. But it's it's a topic out there that when it's not discussed... It can cause a lot of problems, and I think you're going to see some of that with a lot of baby boomers. Because typically, people don't like to discuss money, especially in families. But it's super important once you know somebody passes or or, or patriarch and matriarch pass how those assets either get divided up or what happens with you know family farms or family beach houses or whatever else. And you know, I came across an article that was in the Wall Street Journal that talked about this. That actually really had some some good advice, but I think also brings to light just some of the issues that can come up if if you don't address these things yeah do you have a will i do i do so i i don't who's your who's your executor if you and your wife were to pass away it's my dad right now
2: okay yeah i mean i wonder now if it, i don't even know what happened if if we both had some sort of accident you know died in a plane crash or something i don't even know what would happen with all of our stuff probably our families but i haven't yeah, done anything frankly Club i really a, don't care
1: go to the <laughs> state yeah it, it, it's not as big of a deal until you have kids right like i've got i've got two kids right so i review yeah, i pay my life insurance totally, policy totally. every february that's when it renews i tell you know i joke with my wife that i've got you know x amount of reasons the dollars that i paid for in, in the month of february <laughs> that i love her and and love my children and so, you know, I pay that and I look through and I start getting into all these little things, making sure that all my accounts are updated. We just had a, n- a new baby a couple months ago. So I had to add a him to all of our accounts, make sure that, you know, those get divvied up retirement account wise between my two kids. And right now it's just 50-50. We just have two. But yeah, it's something that I do every year. And, and you know, I, I wasn't very good at it until we had kids, honestly. And then kind of started trying to, to get better at it. And there's still some things. I mean, I still need to go through and, and put together some additional trust documents. It's crazy. I mean, you start adding assets and then you realize, crap, I got to update some of the stuff and have another kid and got to update things and... You know, some of it can just get away from you if you're not on top of it.
2: Yeah. And I think on the backside, right, on somebody who's on the other side here, when someone does pass away and you have to be the executor, you have to go through with everything right and divvy it up and you got five, six kids in the picture or other people or things are left to different people outside of the family. I mean, it can get pretty messy for somebody that's on the other end. So totally agree with what you said in the beginning. It's probably something we should ask more about the show. It's probably something that people should be more engaged in overall. Um, but anyway, just another thing to think about and and something that we came across this week and, and, and talked about.
0: Totally.
1: So in today's show, we've got John. He's an immigrant who moved to the United States with about $1,000 in his pocket. And today he's got a net worth of $2.3 million. He's single and he lives in a very high cost of living area. So it'd be a great episode for those of you who've written into us, you know, about how to do this and how to get to the, the, achieve millionaire status and financial freedom when you're single, especially living in a high cost of living area. We talk about how to increase income from their day job and how to achieve financial freedom in a high-cost living area. Once again, he blogs at Financial Freedom Countdown. On last week's show, we had the money couple. Scott and Bethany are married and both financial advisors. We discussed financial personalities, potential money problems in marriage, and how to solve them and why being on the same page financially is so important. They also share that it costs on average about $275,000 to raise a child from kindergarten through four years of college in the United States. So go check out that. That's episode number 123. I'd like to thank this week's sponsor, a podcast titled Start From Zero, for sponsoring today's episode. It's a wonderful new podcast and it's climbing the ranks quickly. It's a unique show and has even reached top 15 in rankings. It's an experienced entrepreneur who takes people from all walks of life and mentors them, teaching them how to make money starting from zero without compromising who they are. Also, the podcast has a 50% female participants on the episodes. He has 15 millionaire students and it shows. The episodes are highly edited for maximum impact. It's as good as they come. If you'd like to try out an episode to see if you like it, visit startfromzero.com slash millionaire. People have been binge listening to it just like Netflix. That's startfromzero.com slash millionaire. We appreciate all of you tuning in the podcast week after week. If you enjoy the show, we appreciate you leaving a five-star review on either iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us grow the show and continue to reach new millionaire interviewees. Also, if you're interested in in any of our multifamily opportunities, please reach out to us. It's millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Without any further delay, let's get into today's episode with John. John, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now?
0: Sure. So I'm an individual who came to this country all by myself around 14 years ago. And when I came to this country, I had only $1,000 in my pocket. Today, after 14 years, I have a net worth of $2.35 million. And I'm single living in San Francisco Bay Area. I currently work at a job which provides great work-life balance. In fact, it's so flexible that I just go to work once a week. So I consider myself almost partially retired. And I'm super excited to be on the podcast.
1: Let's get into this. This is awesome. So, Johnny, 2.35 million, how is that kind of broken up?
0: Sure. So the 2.35 million... 1 million is definitely my house and that consists of both my primary house as well as my rental unit so my rental unit is almost free and then what the rental unit income on a monthly basis provides for the mortgage of my house so I consider my 1 million house in my net worth and then in terms of the other allocation I have 300,000 in a 401k or IRA related investments most of that is just pure index funds Similarly, around 200k in Roth investments, again, in broad-based index funds, which are diversified on emerging markets, developed markets, as well as US markets. And then I have around 400k in taxable accounts. Again, that is very traditional index fund based allocation. And then I have a number of 350,000 in various different investments. 100,000 is in crypto investments. I have stocks, which are individual stocks. Those are around 100,000. And then I invest in a platform which actually provides me investments in various platforms such as art, finance, and then marine financing, as well as legal dispute settlement cases. And all of that works out to roughly 150,000. So that, in a nutshell, is how my 2.35 million is broken up. Wow. And you said the the rental unit is mortgage free? Yes, the rental unit is mortgage free and that pays. My primary house has a mortgage on it, but the rental unit cash flow pays for my mortgage. At one point in time, I thought of actually paying off my primary residence, but given the tax advantages of it, I just decided to leave it for now and the low interest rate that I have for a 30 year mortgage.
1: Yeah. So how, how did you end up with a paid for rental and then a mortgage on your house? What's how did that all kind of unfold and unravel to, to where you are now?
0: Sure. So when I was looking for a house, uh, and this was, Way back in 2013 uh the market in san francisco bay area had already picked up from the worst it it was not actually hit a whole lot in the recession but it had definitely picked up by then from the low point i was specifically looking for a certain type of house with a large lot on it and what i did was the fact that i built a rental unit in the back of the lot and i managed to subdivide it so i is almost like a separate unit compared to my primary house, and that studio one-bedroom unit which I built on it with cash uh, typically rents for around sixteen hundred. That pays off my entire mortgage. Wow.
1: Okay. So you kind of did a little bit of hacking. You're, I don't know how what you'd want to call that, but basically utilizing what you've got, real estate-wise, to kind of make it a little bit more advantageous for you personally in terms of the income stream.
0: Definitely. And I think that's the advantage of buying a single primary house in a location like the San Francisco Bay Area where it's in short supply. So you would get a lot of transient workers who would like to stay in that. And those are high income potential folks like traveling nurses or doctors who want to be there in the Bay Area for a short period of time, but don't want to settle. And those are kind of the best renters because they just pay the rent on a regular basis and they don't bother you. And given the fact that the lot is big enough, you can just put up a fence and then you subdivide the lot.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I, I lived out in the Bay Area for, for a little bit and I ended up renting a room out of somebody else's house, just given the real estate market there and how everything was going. And, you know, that was several years ago that I did that. So I know what you've done and what other people do to try to make it all work out there is is one creative, but two, it's very common, right?
0: Right. That is true. In fact, I thought of renting out the rooms, but uh, given the fact that I would not prefer to live with roommates, it was hard decision for me. So this was an easier one because it's a unit totally physically separated from my main house and I can live by myself in my three bed, two bath house.
1: Totally. So, John, when you started this journey, you get here, you got a thousand bucks in your pocket. What was going through your mind when you got here and what did it take for you to kind of get to this country?
0: Right. So when I came to this country, actually, it was a scary decision because A, I was the only one from my family to actually leave the country and cross the seven seas and literally be in the U.S. without knowing anyone. And the second hard part was not knowing any of the systems or how things work. So I did not even know what a credit card is because India at that point in time was more or less a cash based system from where I immigrated. And then I also had to figure out how do I get a rental unit? So. All of that involved a lot of research a month or so before I actually came to this country and then figuring out what is the best way I can figure out how to live in it and then actually manage my cash flow in the early initial days. Because when I came here with only thousand dollars and I needed a place to stay, I actually found someone willing to rent with me giving a three month deposit, which kind of makes sense because I have no credit history and the individual has no way of knowing whether I'll pay going forward or not. So that left me with nothing less than $200 in that particular month. And I was like, oh, I hope I do get paid at the end of this month. Of I don't even have money to go back home. <laughs> uh, so it, it was a scary thing to undertake that decision. And then slowly or a period of time, I gradually learned. I leveraged my human capital. I tried to pick up assignments, which were tough and difficult locations where no one else wanted to go. And that enabled me to also be in the good books of my employer but at the same time also get kudos from the client who was willing to see someone come into their uh, location in far off distant towns and work closely with them in order to make their projects a success and that feedback in turn fed back to my employer who was willing to give me raises consecutively and as a result of me managing my career I was then able to slowly climb up the ranks with only a bachelor's degree in engineering and still make it all the way to a higher net worth individual.
2: Wow. And congrats on your success. And I want to come back to that because I think that's been a key element of your story is managing your career and kind of figuring out how to do that and to quickly increase your salary. When you came to the U.S. from India, did you, had you already finished school? Yes, I had finished school. And did you have a job lined up or you came and and then you just had to start looking?
0: Oh, no, I had this particular job lined up and they were the ones who actually sponsored my visa for work visa Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. purposes. And that's how I actually came to this country.
2: Okay, gotcha. And then how many, you can answer this as, as detailed or vague as you want, how many jobs have you had in these last 12 or 13 years since you've been in the States?
0: So I've had six jobs, uh, including the current one since I moved to the States. The first job which I mentioned was more a consulting firm. So I had different clients. It was kind of different jobs, but still the same employer.
2: Okay, good for you. And and maybe this actually is a good spot for your career management. You know, and you kind of alluded to it earlier being, and, and I think Jake, Jason and I would agree with this, that, you know, being flexible, at least early on in your career, right, and, and showing a, a more, a better attitude, right, of being willing to jump in and do things maybe that other people aren't as comfortable with or other people don't want to do. Is that kind of what's driven your success in your career or is there something else maybe on this? millionaire journey is there something else that you can point to beyond just that that says hey that's that's how i did it that's how i reached millionaire status
0: uh, i would say a couple of different aspects along with that one of it uh, i could quickly go down the list and then we could delve into each one one is uh, when I actually graduated from college, I only had my technical skills, but not so much soft skills. And that is something when I early on met my first manager, asked him, what could I do better? And then he emphasized the importance of soft skills. So that lesson I always carried through my life. And what is often overlooked is the soft skills needed to survive and thrive at work. A lot of times people would find someone with a technical aptitude, but if you're not able to bond with that individual, it's hard to get anything done. So I think definitely paying attention to soft skills helped me along the way. The second aspect would be to add value outside my team. So not just look at your current manager and see how they can be successful, but if you are in a cross-functional environment, and most of modern day companies typically involve working with multiple teams and resources, try and figure out what your boss's peers also want. And a lot of times during the appraisal timeframe, they would often have Praises come from my peers of my boss. So imagine my boss receiving a recommendation email from his peers saying, Hey, John work with me on this project. He has been a great asset and he helped my team members move along the way. And uh, that makes it very easy for my boss to then further go along and recommend my promotion or something in terms of additional bonus. So definitely add value outside of your team. The third thing would be to ask for that promotion. So when you know you have done a good job, don't be shy. A lot of times. And I've been on both sides of the fence. So I've been a individual contributor, and other times I've managed other individuals. And I can tell you, when I'm a manager, it's been hard for me to remember who has done what. So keeping track of your achievements throughout the day and throughout the year, and then making a point that when you go back to your manager every three or four months, you just remind them periodically and ask for that promotion. Because if you do not advocate for yourself, no one else will. So I think you need to believe in yourself, keep track of all your achievements, and definitely ask for that promotion. And then I would say you need to recruit network closely with recruiters as well. One thing I've done very well is always accept invitations from LinkedIn recruiters. And most of the times, even if you are not looking for that particular job, it doesn't help to keep, it doesn't hurt to actually have that bridge open with them. Because once you are able to get connected to that particular recruiter, that recruiter may not want to hire you at that particular point in time, but at some point, in the future, if they have a job similar to your skills, you will definitely pop up in their search results and you're the first person they will think of contacting. So I think keeping your network open with the recruiters as well as with your coworkers all your bridges open, those are some of the things I would say would definitely help anyone in their career.
2: Yeah, really, really, really good advice. Thank you. Thanks for sharing and and totally agree with keeping track of your accomplishments throughout the year because oftentimes, you know, even if you don't have a review every few months, it comes time at the end of the year and it's sometimes hard to remember what was going on in February or March, right? Exactly. So just backing up here, John, big picture on your allocation, You're, you're kind of split between 401k or Roth and traditional, right? and you have this, these investments in, in cryptocurrency, and you said in some other investments, right? How did you kind of decide on the allocation? Has it been trial and error? Is there something you're going after? Or how did you come to this investment allocation?
0: It has been a lot of trial and error, to be honest. So when I initially started, I knew nothing about stocks or investments. So I would watch CNBC for a while when I had enough money, which I thought I could invest. And then Watching Jim Cramer was always fun and entertaining. I did uh, try to do some individual stock picks. Unfortunately, most of them failed miserably. So I remember buying Sears Holding way back in the day when Eddie Lampert became the chairman, thinking, oh, he has a good reputation and might as well go with that. And uh, that that did not end well. Similarly, I picked up some other stocks. Like at one point in time, I thought natural gas was a good pick and I decided to go along that route. Most of those did not end well. And then I gradually moved on to index funds because I thought, at the current level of my skill, individual stock picking is not good. Gradually, as my net worth grew, and then I had more time to research and investigate different investment options, I then started adding in other aspects of it. Uh, crypto is actually unique. Uh, the reason I got into crypto was so most of the individuals uh, who have not visited India or know India's past uh, think about it as a very peaceful country and. Unfortunately, India has a large number of sectarian violence history, way back in the day from the time of independence and partition to even as recent when Bombay was rocked with sectarian violence as well as the rest of the country. So I do remember growing up as a kid, uh, a lot of that going on. And that, in some point in time, mirrored my reading of uh, Jews in Nazi Germany trying to escape the country and leave. So when crypto came along, I started reading along this investments, uh, but this was 2016. So not way back in the day, but fairly recent 2016, 2017. And then I realized that there are a lot of assets, which if the government turns against you can be seized, but crypto is one asset, which cannot be. So that's what got me more interested in cryptocurrencies. And then I started following some individuals on Twitter and then Telegram. And that's how I got slowly introduced to cryptocurrencies. As I started going deeper and deeper, I ventured even far beyond uh, the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the top 10 coins into ICOs. Unfortunately, most of these ICOs, I believe, are far ahead of their times and now are running out of cash. So most of them will be worthless and going to zero. I don't know yet whether Bitcoin or Ethereum will go to zero, but it's definitely a risky bet on the future. I would say more like an emergency fund. You can have it, but I wouldn't advise anyone to invest a substantial net worth in it. Just have enough that if you need to, Anytime, leave the country and resettle in a different place. It's just something you can just carry with you and leave. Yeah. So
2: the these other kind of these other pieces of your portfolio that you mentioned, you said marine financing and and legal disputes. For somebody, including myself, that's maybe not familiar with that, maybe talk about two or three of these items that you have in your portfolio that may be unfamiliar to others.
0: Uh, sure. So I think uh, most of those, I got it on a platform known as Yield Street, which is. Uh, only for accredited investors, that is anyone with a certain net worth or earning certain annual income every year. And marine financing typically finances the tanker acquisitions, so the tankers which are used and then for fairing various products across the ocean and are then sold at a scrap value. You can finance those purchases. Uh, Art is similar where you can actually have a fractional investment in a art piece and over a period of time that piece can either increase in value, decrease in value, and when it's sold off, you get your proportional income. And then the legal dispute is actually when a lot of people have legal settlements with large pharmaceutical companies, as an example, and then instead of them waiting for that to play out, typically all of those are packaged, bundled, and sold on these platforms. What you could do is you could just purchase a portion of it, and then wait for the settlement claims to pay out. So Most of these are slightly diversified in the sense that they're not correlated to the stock and bond markets. And that's why I got attracted to it. And I invested around 150,000 in those kind of investments.
2: So return wise, what, what are you looking at there? If any of those panned out for you or what do they tell you historically in those asset classes? What returns can somebody expect?
0: So initially when it started off, it had a 13% return. Now the returns have come down to aggregated around nine or 10%, but it's still pretty good. And I like it just for the diversification aspect of it.
2: Okay, gotcha. And that's for the bucket of all all of them through that platform. That is correct.
0: Yes. Gotcha.
2: Gotcha. Okay. So have you ever used a financial advisor?
0: I have not used a financial advisor yet. I, I might at some point in time when I decide if I want to create a drawdown strategy, but at this point in time, I have not needed a financial advisor.
2: Gotcha. And then you mentioned uh, when we were talking earlier a couple of financial mistakes you made as you were as you were learning um, to invest or some of the different changes you were doing trial and error. You know, couple that I guess with advice we usually get at this at the end of the interview, but I think it fits in here. What's maybe some of those mistakes or what did you learn that you could tell us about?
0: Definitely. So I think I have quite a lot of mistakes. One is the fact that I'm learning as I go along this journey. So something as simple as investing in my 401k. So my first job, although I had a 20% match in that, I never invested in my 401k because I did not understand what a 401k is. And looking back, I think uh, six years of not investing in a 401k is an expensive mistake, especially when the stock market has done really well. Uh, The other ones would be my individual stock picks, which did not do well. Uh, Some of those have been even fairly recent. So for example, I invested in a number of lithium companies thinking that with the electronic vehicle boom, those will do well, but most of them have jurisdiction risk and the fact that they need constant financing makes it hard. Then in terms of the cryptocurrency area, I would say investing in the ICOs has not turned out as well. In fact, most of them have almost gone to zero just because of the fact that Adoption has been so poor and the companies which started those ICOs have almost run out of cash and can no longer operate. A factor also is that a lot of them are operating overseas. So it's hard for you to keep track how the companies are judiciously managing the funds given to them. So I would say all of those have been lessons learned along the way. The good part about all of it is in any of those investments in which I lost money. Oh, I also did some real estate investing. So I had a crowdfunding platform and I invested in a particular deal on the crowdfunding platform and that appraisal which came in after repair value after the fund was dispersed was quite low and so i suffered around 50 percent loss on my real estate investment as well but i think in terms of lessons learned none of these investments really ruined my early retirement plan or my net worth just because of the fact that I kept my position sizes relatively small to my overall net worth. And once I'm done with allocation in it, even if it goes down, I do not add in more money. So I do not try to average down and lower the cost. If it's done, it's done. And then I move on to my next investment. So I think that has helped me not get totally ruined by all of these financial mistakes.
1: Awesome, John. So... You've got this net worth 2.3. You've got a pretty good work-life balance with your with your job right now. Where do you go from here? Do you have a target net worth trying to get to a certain
0: passive income goal, early retirement? What's kind of on the docket for you? So in terms of next steps, I think I would continue with this current job as long as my employer would like me with this arrangement. But after I'm no longer employed, then I think I would be voluntarily taking financial independence and retiring, not planning to look for another job. Uh, in fact, when I was looking for this one, I had uh, Amazon, Facebook, other companies contact me, but this work-life balance would definitely not suit me. So I plan to retire. And in terms of net worth, I'm shooting for around 3 million. If most of that is passive and I get 40 000 to 50,000 return per year, that should Last me well, given the fact that I have a paid off house and I do not need to pay my mortgage, given also the fact that I love to travel, I think between all of my expenses, more or less, on an average, I should be able to do well with 30 or 40,000. And my house is my backup plan in case things go really bad and the market doesn't return as much as I expected to going forward. I could always sell my house and move to outside the Bay Area, still in California maybe, but not merely within this expensive location, but in some smaller towns outside of the Silicon Valley, San Francisco Bay Area and still enjoy my life.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that. What are you looking forward to at that point when you do retire? Are there certain hobbies you're going to spend more time doing or what's kind of that transition look like for you?
0: So in terms of hobbies, I think I do enjoy weightlifting and travel. So My typical days, get up in the morning, go to the gym, then have my lunch, and then do some level of reading, writing, work. And travel is something which I do for six to eight weeks in a year. Once I retire, I plan to do that for around six months of the year. So I might not be here for long, and then I will be spending half my time in California and half the time overseas. So that is my plan roughly when I retire. I don't have any set goals or destinations, but over a period of time, I've almost gone to every continent except Antarctica. So I do plan to actually spend time living in each country for a while. And maybe that's how I'll spend my six months abroad. So I would be three months in one country, three months in the next country overseas, come back for a short period of time and then repeat the cycle over and over again.
1: Wow.
2: And you travel a lot, I assume. How many countries have you been to?
0: I've been to 35 countries so far.
2: Oh, wow. And which stands out? What's been one of your favorites, your top three?
0: Uh, I would say uh, the one that stands out is definitely Costa Rica, just because of the fact that it has volcanoes, it has beaches, and it has cloud and rainforest. So in terms of natural beauty, it is really amazing. And one of the uh, smallest countries that I've been to that you can drive from one end of the country to the other in just 24 hours. So I really enjoyed that. The second one would be Australia for sure, just because of the diversity, the Gold Coast, koalas and kangaroos. So that has been a fun destination to spend time over there. And my third one would be Italy, uh, just because of the art culture. Uh, I mean, just walking in Rome, you have your modern day Rome, and then you have prehistoric Rome, and then you have like streets which were like more than two thousand years old, and you just like are amazed, and you see a water fountain right in the middle of the street in front of the Starbucks, which is also two thousand years old, so it's just amazing. So I think <laughs> those are the three places I would say my top three.
2: Awesome, awesome, good for you. So one uh, random question here, and some people ask us to ask this a little bit more often, but I, and I think it totally applies to you, taxes. Do you do your own taxes because of kind of some of these interesting investments you have and you're pretty diversified in other things? Do you do your own taxes or do you hire it out?
0: <laughs> so that that's an interesting uh, conundrum which I have and I still not figured it out. And in fact, I wrote a blog post on it as well that CPAs always make mistakes. So I don't do my own taxes. I always have a CPA do my taxes, and I've always changed multiple CPAs. But no matter what, they do make end up making some of the other mistakes, which I find out later on when I'm reviewing my taxes. So. Uh, I give it out to a CPA, but at the same time, I review it. And I then have now developed a checklist, which helps me review my taxes pretty soon. The good part about having a CPA look at your taxes is because tax laws continuously change. So it's good to have a professional actually create it. And then for me, reviewing the taxes versus doing it myself is much easier. So that's the approach I've taken.
2: Gotcha. And I know you mentioned us, you're single. Is your family still in India?
0: Uh, so my brother uh and my sister-in-law live re- in the Bay Area. So pretty close by. So they came in, uh, my brother actually moved here, I would say four years ago. And then my parents spend some of their time in India and some of their time here, given that me and my brother are the only two children. So they do spend six months in India and then six months over here with us. So my retirement plan does include spending a lot of time with them. And that's the entire reason why I wanted to pursue financial independence and early retirement. Uh, in fact, I did not even think about this concept until, uh, lately. So, I remember when I moved to Silicon Valley, uh, there was a particular incident where I was thinking that my VP mentioned to me that her sister is not well and she wanted to go. And my VP is around 70 years old. And I thought, oh, she might go and visit her sister and asked her, when are you going to visit? And she's like, oh, I can't go. There's a product launch coming up. And then one week later, I remember we were all in a meeting. She got a phone call. She stepped out of the room. She And then she never came back. And then when I met her later in the day, she told me that her sister passed away. So uh, that mm. actually struck me like a bolt of lightning. And then I realized that someone who's earning more than three times more than me is almost like a wage slave and still uh, not able to spend time with their allowed one. So I think that's when I decided to pursue financial independence. Till then I did not even understand this concept. And that's when I got more into, okay, let me get more serious with respect to my investment, with respect to my planning my retirement and how to actually spend the limited time we all have. With a loud one so i think that's where i got along the journey
2: yeah well, uh, good story and, and great advice totally agree with you so john just before we jump into these rapid fire millionaire questions you've done this very very quickly right you, you have a thousand dollars net worth now over two has it increased your happiness levels your confidence levels has this money changed you at all what's kind of your mindset there
0: uh, i would say yes uh, and i I, I know I read a lot of books, uh, which says that money doesn't make you happy, but I've never met a rich person who is not. I would say, I would say money doesn't make you happy, but at the same time, I don't think it would make you sad either. So.
1: It, <laughs> That's a good way to put it, right? It might not make you happy, but it sure ain't going to make you sad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So definitely, I think it's a balance. You have to figure out what sacrifices you need to make along the way, because at some point in time, all of these did involve sacrifices. So I wouldn't lie that if I stayed in the same location without going to the smaller towns or the consulting engagements, which I took at some point, or saying no to some options would not have made me happier. But that's a trade-off which everyone needs to make. Uh, I would say that in terms of my friend circle as well, a lot of that has changed. Uh, I firmly believe that you are the average of the five people you hang out with. I think that's a Jim Rohn code. So in that sense, definitely the people I would have hung out with, if they haven't kept pace with me, then there's a different circle of individuals I would now uh, hang out with. So those are things which I would say definitely have changed.
2: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you sharing that. So let's just jump into some rapid fire questions here. What's the most expensive jeans or, or pair of pants you've ever purchased?
0: Uh, I think... Around $250 for diesel jeans, though that's my most expensive pair. The good part is it still fits me, so it's been five years since I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, most expensive shoes? Allen Edmonds, uh, I think around 150 Nice. Nice. Uh, most expensive car? Uh, I would say my Toyota, I still drive it. I, when I bought it, it was 25000 It might have depreciated a lot in the five years since I owned it, but I would say that's <laughs> my only expensive car.
2: Okay, most expensive meal out that you've personally paid for?
0: Uh, French Laundry in Napa Valley. Uh, I think that's one of the best Michelin star restaurants I've been to. And I remember that I'd gone there with my parents and it was around $800. For the
2: three of you? Yes. Okay, Uh, what item or experiences were spending more money on to you?
0: I would say travel, definitely. It's a good aspect to go out and connect with different people. And at the same time, Living in the U.S. Uh, after coming from India, I think I've become too soft. So sometimes when I go to Cambodia and actually see the life conditions over there, it fires me up that I have it so good. It also inspires a sense of gratefulness in me. So I think travel definitely is one of the experiences I would spend more money on.
2: Yeah, uh, What's not worth the money? What What do you try and save on?
0: I don't think I would specifically save on something, but I've, I've become more or more more or less minimalistic lately, and I would avoid owning certain things, so I would rather rent and then give it back versus owning a lot of things because over a period of time after acquiring the house, I realized that most of my bedrooms are filled with stuff, and now over a period of time, I'm making a conscious decision not to own so much things
2: okay what age do you did you become a millionaire? Do you remember?
0: I would say at thirty five
2: okay that's young. Uh, have you ever used a financial advisor? You said no. How much do you spend a year, annual household spending?
0: I've not tracked my spending to be honest, Ah, uh, because I use a lot of credit cards and some of those are weird combination of the way I do a sign up bonus. I would spend more in a certain month and front load my expenses, but on a rough average I would assume between thirty to forty thousand.
2: Okay. That's pretty that's not much in San
0: Francisco, right? Uh, yes, because I, I don't consider my mortgage uh, in that, so it's more or less just living expenses.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, favorite books or tools, tech tools or websites, anything that's that's helped you?
0: So in terms of books, I would definitely uh, say Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robbins. It definitely helps you figure out what is most important in your life and what is worth trading time for money. And in terms of tools, I would say i have used personal capital to more or less have a good picture of all my accounts. And then the other one which I would highly recommend is M1 Finance. In fact, I did comparison of all the various tools like M1 Finance against Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity and all of uh, the other robo-advisors as well. And this one allows you to invest in individual stocks with zero fees and it has really low cost minimums. For you to get started. The best advantage is it also allows you to dollar cost average. So I wrote a long post as to how I'm currently buying Amazon or Netflix because these stocks are so expensive it's hard for you to get over the mental barrier to invest in it. So this just you can just contribute hundred dollars and just over a period of time own those stocks.
2: Okay. Great. And then as much as you're comfortable, what's been your range of income through your work in life?
0: I would say it has been uh from starting out thirty, forty thousand to around two hundred and fifty thousand.
2: Okay. And then lastly, what does happiness or fulfillment mean to you? What does it mean to be happy?
0: I think to mean to be happy for me is having the freedom to spend time as you wanted. And at the same point, being able to impact others and help others as you need who are close to you.
1: Awesome. John, just to kind of wrap up here, would you change anything about the journey that you've taken and and maybe kind of shed some light on to... Is your family, do any of them wish they would have done what you've done or are they all content doing what they've kind of done and you're content here doing what you've done?
0: Uh, I, I I don't think I would change anything because even the failures which I had along the way have kind of shaped me into who I am. Uh, there has been a lot of sacrifices both on my end as well as my family's and in the sense when I first came here, we had to just exchange like email because even audio communication was not possible due to the expense in india of having uh, a constant broadband internet connection but over a period of time i think uh, we both are much happier along the journey and the fact that i'm not financially independent can visit them often they can come here and visit me i think that's been worth it
1: that's awesome john a net worth of 2.35 million thanks for coming on the show today thank you for having me it's been great talking to you both thanks john